Welcome to another episode of the Existential Hope podcast. My name is Beatrice and I'm one of the co-hosts of the podcast together with Alison Dittman. In today's episode, we're joined by Jason Crawford. Jason is a prolific writer, researcher and thinker. He has a great interest in the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. And he also runs the nonprofit Roots of Progress, where, for example, they host a fellowship encouraging more people to write about progress studies. So in this conversation, we touch on a few things, for example, the evolution of technology, the relationship between science and invention, and last but not least, how does progress studies relate to existential hope? So whether you're a tech enthusiast or a history buff or someone who just enjoys understanding the deeper interplays of science and progress in general, this episode can hopefully provide you with some new insights on these topics. So let's just get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Foresight's Existential Home Podcast. Really happy to have Jason Crawford here. You've been leading the way in this new field of progress studies and actually implementing many of the findings that movement, anyone could almost call it that at this point, has brought about. You have founded this wonderful um, organization, Roots of Progress, with this mission to really develop and implement a new philosophy of progress. And you've written extensively about that. I hope to dig into that a little bit today. I've also been on for an AMA with you guys, which is really fun. And you've done some really amazing writing also for works in progress on how progress is not linear. So there's a ton of follow-up material that people can dig into and perhaps after the interview. And maybe we touch on a few of them in a bit more depth. And personally, it was really fun to meet you a little bit more in person at our Vision Weekends. And we're hoping and are excited to welcome you again this year. So it's really fun stuff, including now a progress fellowship that I'm dying to also discuss a little bit more. But maybe you can lay the land a little bit in terms of like your three-minute history, the history of Jason Crawford, of how you got into the work that you do right now and what it actually is that you do every day. Yeah, sure. So I, yeah, I do two things. One is that I write about the history of technology and the philosophy of progress. I write about that in my blog, The Roots of Progress, on Twitter, where I spend just a little bit too much time. And then I am also working on a book about the history of industrial civilization. So, and we can go into more detail and all that stuff. And then the other thing that I do is that I help to run a, a nonprofit, which is also called The Roots of Progress. It started as a blog. We turned it into a nonprofit. And as you hinted at, the number one thing that we're doing with that with that non-organization right now is a programs to support other progress writers and, and speakers and, and progress intellectuals. And I'm happy to go into detail on what's going on there. I, I used to be in tech myself. My degree is in computer science and my that's my background. But long story short, I got into studying the history and nature of progress as an intellectual side project, and it took over my life. And a few years ago, I decided to go full time on it. And so I made the midlife career shift from being a software engineering manager and tech startup founder to, to now being a researcher and a writer and a nonprofit leader. So here I am. I think that actually brings a really interesting kind of approach to the whole thing, because you're not only coming from the theoretical side, but you really like have been in the belly of the beast and seen kind of progress or like the kind of stagnation challenges and work life before you delve into that. I like to think that I come to the study of progress with an engineer's mindset. And so I find that when I'm looking into the history of various technologies, I am more interested than the average researcher or writer in understanding the technical details. Like, how did this actually work? Why was this a difficult problem? One of the one of my favorite questions that I like to ask is like, why couldn't we have used some simpler solution? 
you can walk into a factory and you can marvel at the amazing complexity of all these machines around you doing all these things, right? But then the engineer in me says, couldn't this have been made simpler? Why do we need all of this stuff? It's funny, right now I'm in the middle of researching the history of agriculture. And so one of the things you learn in this is that the one of the biggest central problems in the history of agriculture is soil fertility, that soil loses its fertility over time. And so one of the things that people did in to, to combat this, even in the ancient world, is they would plant legumes, which are a special kind of crop that, unlike every other type of crop, actually um, enriches the soil rather than depleting its fertility. And so you wonder, like, why didn't people just plant all legumes all the time? That sounds like the perfect crop, right? Like, why couldn't we have gotten away with that as a solution? Why do we have an enormous industry devoted to creating synthetic fertilizer today, right? Why don't we just all eat legumes and all legume diet, right? And there's an answer to that question, but these are the types of things that I like to dig into to really understand our world, to look around and understand our world as not just like an arbitrary invention like that we came up with because we thought it was cool, but actually as a solution to a problem, as like an answer to human fundamental human needs and and desires and and how we solve those kind of in the face of of nature's constraints and ultimately the laws of physics. And so I, I see the modern world as being produced a lot by the fundamental nature of humans and then the fundamental nature of reality and those two things coming together. So yeah, that's I like how I, that's how I like, yeah, civilization is like a problem solving machine. And then you can evaluate whether or not we're doing well on solving these problems. And so what's the answer to the legumes question? I haven't totally figured it out yet. I think part of the answer is just people don't want to eat legumes all the time. I think actually another part of the answer is you don't get the yield is not as high. So you actually get higher yield in terms of mass or calories per acre or whatever from other... So at minimum, you want to alternate. You want to do like a crop rotation, right? And if you can get fertility from somewhere else, then you also want to. And then you also want to do that. In fact, somebody was telling me... So in, so thinking about more the way Foresight thinks about things in terms of the future, one of the, one of the really interesting things that we might be able to do someday is genetically engineer other crops to do what legumes do. So it turns out legumes can create their own fertilizer or at least their own nitrogen, which is the most, the biggest typically ingredient in fertilizer. They can make their own fixed nitrogen because it's actually not the crops doing it, it's bacteria. So bacteria are the only organisms that can fix um, nitrogen out of the atmosphere and then get you the nitrogen, the nitrates and stuff that you need as a plant. So legumes, it turns out, just live in symbiosis with bacteria that do this. They have these little nodules on their roots, the bacteria live there, and then they do. Okay, so, well, if they're in symbiosis, the, the bacteria must be getting paid somehow, right? What are they getting out of the deal? And it turns out they get some of the energy from the plant, so some of the photosynthesis energy. And so because of that, the vigor of the plant is actually reduced because some of it has to go to some of its photosynthesis is not going to its own growth. It's going to its it's going to the to, to feed the bacteria. So if you did genetically engineer corn or something to have these to be self-fertilizing in this way, you would there'd be a trade-off. It doesn't come for free. The corn would be reduced in yield at least somewhat. Great. More genetic modification of plants on the horizon. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> but um, yeah, cool, right? Like. Synthetic fertilizer is expensive. Fertilizer runoff has issues. Like, it would be cool if we had that option. Yeah, yeah, certainly. That, that would be a really nice one. And you also wrote a Works in Progress piece on the fact that the progress is in general, not linear. Can you give like a few highlights of that? Because I think that is a really nice, like fast track into your worldview. Yeah. So a lot of this is around the question of what is the relationship between science and invention? 
Like at a very high level, we tend to think of, oh, we figure out stuff via science and then we apply it in inventions. They even call it applied science, right? The notion of, or applications or translation, right? Though all those terms seem to imply that first we figure out some science and then an invention is an application of science. And there is some truth to that. And if you're painting with a very broad brushstroke, like that's true. But as soon as you start looking at the details of how things actually happen, you start to realize that model is simplistic and very quickly breaks down. Very often, we make new inventions based on science that we like, we, and we don't totally understand how they work yet. They're often based on, like often the science comes along later to totally explain how things work. So the classic example of this is the steam engine versus thermodynamics. The steam engine is invented in the 1700s and thermodynamics doesn't come along until the 1800s. And in fact, thermodynamics was, not only did it come later, it was literally inspired by the steam engines. The point of thermodynamics was to study these engines and to learn better how they work. And so thermodynamics was great for optimizing engines, but it didn't, it wasn't what we needed to invent the steam engine. So what is the real relationship between these things? I think ultimately there is there is a really crucial way in which invention depends on science, but the relationship is nuanced. It's definitely not linear. There's not some linear flow where everything begins in pure science and then goes through some pipeline to invention, right? It is much more reciprocal. So the influence goes both ways. Science discovers some concepts like semiconductors. And then people say, ooh, semiconductors are interesting. Let's tinker around with semiconductors and see what we can figure out, right? And then maybe they're like, and they're like, maybe we could build a semiconductor amplifier, right? A solid state amplifier. That would be really cool. Can we do that? I don't know. Let's figure it out, right? And then as they're tinkering, but the science that we had, and of course, I'm talking about the transistor, right? The science that we had when we began looking at the transistor was not sufficient to actually build the transistor. Like the the researchers at Bell Labs who invented the transistor, like they were going along and like the theory that existed at the time was not sufficient to explain all of the experiments that they were doing. They were trying to make a a transistor, like it wasn't coming out the way the theory said it should. They actually had to go back to the drawing board, back to the blackboard and revise the theory and come up with new theory. But, you know, but the theory and the, the science is guiding the tinkering, certainly, right? And in fact, you may even sh- shuttle rapidly back and forth between science and invention in that way. And then certainly after an invention comes along, science and theory is often used to optimize it, to improve the efficiency, to improve the reliability and so forth. So science is there like before, during and after invention. But at the same time, invention is always getting ahead of science. It's always racing ahead of science. And I think there's actually a very simple way to understand why this it, it will always be the case which is like, why does engineering get ahead of science? For a simple reason, because it can. Because you can go right out to the edges of knowledge, right at the boundary of what we barely understand, and you can play around there, and you can tinker, and you can find really cool stuff. And in fact, that's where the biggest economic opportunities are, right? Because, Because that's where maybe you could do something cool, but it's not really straightforward. When creating something new becomes so straightforward that it's just like an application of known principles, like literally an application, we don't call it invention anymore. That's just engineering. That's if you want to make a digital circuit that implements a certain binary function, there's no question today about how you go about that. 
like nobody would call it an invention if you like made a digital circuit to compute some new binary function that had never been computed before. That's just engineering. The same way if I wanted to make a Twitter clone in 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 2023, I'm not that doesn't require any invention. That's just software engineering. Any so any software engineer will know how to create that program. It's very straightforward. But at that point, like there's not so much, there's only limited economic value in creating those things, right? There's much more economic value in doing something like creating fusion, which is at a, you know, which is still kind of a science experiment, right? So I think experimentation and invention is always going, there's always going to be a lot of super valuable stuff to do at the very boundaries, the fuzzy boundaries of our knowledge. And so it's always going to be the case that we're going to be coming up with inventions that science can't totally explain yet. Yeah, it's so funny. This is most speaking an analogy now, but if you apply like a similar pattern to, for example, AlphaFold and AlphaFold 2, AlphaFold was kind of like patchwork together. They just brute force trying to make it work. And AlphaFold 2 was then this like beautifully, like more scientifically crafted and more elegant solution that came afterwards. And uh-huh. once they figured really like how to patch things together. And maybe that can also give us some hope for AI safety in the sense that currently we're like really engineering, like almost at the kind of really, yeah, really at the maximum speed in terms of figuring out what kind of like models could work. And then for interpretability, that's perhaps like more the scientific part of explaining how these models make these make these specific decisions. And maybe that is a hopeful nudge that interpretability eventually can catch up if we can map very roughly the categories that you explained like onto AI. You've also looked into AI a little bit. Do you want to give us your kind of lay of the land of that field right now? Do you have any hot oh, wow. takes? Gosh, everybody's talking about AI right now. And for good reason, right? It's pretty freaking amazing the point that we're at. So the question that I always ask myself is what can I add to the noise, right? A lot of people are excited about AI for really good reason. They're, so I asked this, I posed this question. I think you could, one way you could think about AI is maybe it is the next big thing in computing. We had, we had the personal computer in the, came along in the seventies, right? Maybe eighties, depending on how you count. Then we had the web in the nineties. Then we had mobile in the early two thousands. And is this the next big thing, right? We've been wondering for a while, what's the next big thing. Another way you could wonder about it is, is this the next big like general purpose technology? Should we think about this as analogous with the steam engine, the internal combustion engine or electricity or something like that, right? If you want to get really ambitious, you could ask whether this actually is the beginning of a completely new mode of production. So like we had the hunter-gatherer era, the agricultural era, the industrial era. Are we? Is this like the, the key thing, like the steam engine kicked off the industrial revolution in a certain sense? Is AI going to kick off some new era of economic history, of human history, really, right? Some people would even go further than that and say it's like it's a new species. It's, there was animals, then there's humans, and now there's AI. I, I, yeah, I don't know. So it's just like, how far along that spectrum do you want to do you want to imagine that this is? But no matter what, it's a big deal, right? And I think a bunch of people have written eloquently about why it could be such a big deal. I like the opening paragraphs of Mark Andreessen's essay about AI very clearly laid out a bunch of huge possibilities for what this thing could be. You know, you just imagine that everybody gets think of all the services that you can buy now that are very expensive. Have you ever hired a lawyer? Even for the simplest thing, like getting out of a traffic ticket, right? Sometimes, um, unfortunately. Have you ever had to pay somebody to do your taxes, right? Not like TurboTax, but and not HR Block, but like actually get an accountant. All of these things are super expensive, right? Doctors, we get like a tiny, you get a little 15, 20 minute window with a doctor because they're so expensive, right? And so just to, to think of all these things and now imagine that, now imagine that 
all of that is just taken down by orders of magnitude in price. So almost anyone can afford a great lawyer, a great financial advisor, a great accountant, a great doctor, a great a great tutor. And so you think of so many things in the history of progress are taking something that was once available only to the rich and making it uh, bringing the price down to so that almost everybody can afford it, right? And so you think about all these things right now, these are the things you splurge on if you're rich. You have lawyers and accountants and you have the best doctors and you have tutors, you hire tutors for your children and maybe you hire tutors for yourself if you want to learn something and you hire a personal trainer and all this stuff, right? And so imagine if all of those things went from costing thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to now costing tens of dollars per month or something like a Netflix subscription, that would be amazing. That would open up all of this stuff to, to, to a huge swath of people. And and just like these things tend to be a bigger deal for the for the poor or the moderately well off than middle class than for the rich, I think this would also be a bigger deal for the people of like average intelligence than it is for the smartest people. Because the smartest people, if something's really important to them, maybe they could go out and figure it out on their own, right? The smartest and best educated people can go read up on some tax issue and figure it out for themselves if they really have to. But not everybody could do that. Not realistically, not within the bounds of time and energy and effort that they have. So it'll be an even bigger boon to them. So yeah, so I think this could be huge. I But here's, so here's maybe the uh, a, a, the biggest, like most high level or one of the most high level ways to be optimistic or to think that the potential for AI is really huge is to actually look at an economic growth theory and a, a major challenge that it points out to us. And that challenge is in a phrase, running out of people to push the frontiers of progress forward. Now that might sound like a thing that we are that we're not going to do. Like, why would we run out of people? But there's basically, so there's basically two things that go into this. So the first thing that goes into this is research from economists like Chad Jones at Stanford that show that in a nutshell, in order to keep economic growth going at an exponential rate, in order to keep growing the economy at whatever X percent per year, we need to also continue to grow the inputs to R&D, Right. So if you look at something like Moore's law, you get exponential progress out of Moore's law, exponential number of whatever transistors you can fit on a chip. But also, but to keep Moore's law going at that exponential pace or near exponential pace, it has taken an exponentially growing investment into semiconductor R&D. If you just look at what does Intel and TSMC and everybody spend on R&D to keep this going, like that has been growing exponentially along with the exponential improvement in chips, right? And then and you can see this across different areas of the economy, many different areas, and then you can see it at the at the macro level. And so the conclusion is this is by the way I'm, what I'm summarizing essentially is the famous kind of ideas getting harder to find paper, although some of the basic ideas go back to Chad Jones pointed out some of the stuff in the 90s in in earlier papers. But basically, may I ask a question, Jason? Yeah, sure. Right on the topic. Thanks. Sorry for the interruption. Um, I'm not arguing with Stanford economists about economics. A question that I do have is, aren't there, isn't that partially mitigated in the case of Moore's law and other things by the virtuous cycle where yes, they spend more on R&D and on the inputs for their advanced processes, but because of the advances in, in Moore's, because of Moore's law and other 
advances in technology, you get more bang for your buck. It's not like you're spending 10 times as much money using the same old methods and technologies. You have now big, million times faster computers and all this has other stuff, which is a multiplicative factor on this investment. So even though it might still be growing exponentially, I suspect that the exponent is smaller than the output exponent. That might be true. I don't remember the details of this case well enough to have an authoritative answer for this, but I think basically, so first off, just empirically, like if you look at the, if you just look at the dollars invested and, and you look at the output that you get, you just, you find this basic relationship. I think, yeah, it's certainly true that as we come up with better tools for researchers to use, we should make them more productive. Part of that goes in, like you you still have to buy the tools and buying the tools is higher capital cost as the tools get better. And and so you st- you're still, there's more investment in overall investment in R&D. But yeah, but just empirically, like this basic relationship holds that in order to continue making exponential progress in various areas or in the economy as a whole, it takes exponential input into the R&D process. And yeah, some of that is in the form of like, better computers for the researchers to work with, but that's still part of the overall input. And then the other thing, which, I mean, so I'll have to get into this to explain the significance of the next point, which is that no matter how good, how much of the process you can automate, as long as humans are like a a piece of the process, as long as humans form some part of the bottleneck on R&D, then we have to continue to increase the number of humans involved in R&D as well. Now, through the 20th century, we did this at quite an impressive pace, but we did it in part because of population growth, but also in part because of better education and just increased employment in R&D. So a greater percentage of the human population became educated and then went into R&D jobs. And that factor, of course, can't continue forever. Like at a certain point, you've maxed out everyone in the world is a PhD researcher and you've just maxed out the potential of of, of that particular line of increasing researchers. And then, of course, the other thing that's going on is that in 1968 or so, population world population growth peaked and population growth has been decelerating ever since. And in fact, by some UN projections, population might plateau or even peak within this century and possibly decline. So we might never get more than about 10 or 11 billion people at this by these projections. So you have this concern overall for economic growth, which is that if we want to keep economic growth going at an exponential pace, where are we going to get the researchers from? At a certain point, because of the population, just because of the population problem, like we're just going to run out of people to keep pushing the frontiers of progress forward. And if you think of progress as basically there's like an expanding, the way I think about it is like there's an expanding sphere that is like the frontier of knowledge and technology. And each person can push forward a constant portion of that sphere. And so the bigger the sphere gets, the more people we need to continue like pushing it bigger and bigger, right? That's just like a, a a visual metaphor that you can use to roughly understand this. It might not be quantitatively correct, but yeah, um, I think directionally it, correct. It's interesting from population bomb to now Harker worries about like depopulation. And then I think yeah. could did I mean, recently have a long list on worries about why perhaps we shouldn't be over worrying about depopulation. There may be other factors too that could be kickstarting some of that again. But I think even Carl Schulman, I think in a recent podcast, he even mentioned that like we may, AI may be bottlenecked on humans just because humans have more dexterity. 
dexterity. And so unless we get much better robots very fast, it could actually be that the AI is doing most of the thinking and that the humans are doing most of the execution. And that will be another bottleneck on humans if that actually pans out to be true. Yeah. Although, of course, if that does turn out to be true, then you can just focus all the intelligence on resolving that bottleneck, right? And then <laughs> move past it. But so so just to put this all together into the clear picture and to tie it back to AI, like one way we could get around this problem is we could have AI take over more and more of the research, right? And so if we can exponentially remove humans as a bottleneck on the process and ultimately replace replace the human researchers with AI researchers, then we might be able to continue making progress without without having to continue to grow the human population, if that turns out to be a difficult thing to do. There might be other reasons to grow the human population, but if we don't do that or can't do that for some reason, maybe AI can take over. And so Chad Jones says there's uh, there's almost an, there's almost like an escape velocity here, which is if we can if the humans can push forward the technology to the point where we can hand it off to AI in the relay race, then great, then technology, then progress can just keep going. But if we don't quite hit that point, then we suffer a collapse where it's now there are fewer humans and now we can just put, we just push things slower and progress slows down and we get stagnation. So it might need, it might be that we need to hand off the research to the AI in order to avoid stagnation in the long term. Yeah, so we may have to hit some kind of like escape velocity there <laughs> to even get there. But how does it all tie in with the book that you're now writing? Give us the entirely large picture. Because I think what I still love on the Roots of Progress website, you say something like, in order to make progress, we must believe that it is possible and desirable. And in the 19th century, people really believed in the power of technology and industry to better humanity. But in the 20th century, it's a little bit more perhaps like skeptic and people distrust it a little bit more. And so you're really arguing for this new way forward. And I'm assuming that you're really laying out kind of like a more grand vision of this in the book. Is that correct? Or yeah, give us like a, just a brief tidbit so people can get excited. Yeah, sure. So sure. Let me talk about the book first and we can go more into the big picture and sort of the cultural factors if you want. The book is going to be a, both the history of industrial civilization and the lessons of that history. So it asks, how did we get here? What were the discoveries and inventions that created the modern world and gave us our standard of living that we now enjoy, which is, of course, un- completely unprecedented in human history? And then what are the lessons of that history for key questions about progress, such as is progress good? Can it continue? And ultimately, what should we as a society do about it? So that's the sort of elevator pitch for the book. And I'm planning to cover, if not absolutely all, it won't be encyclopedic, but I'm planning to cover enough of a swath, a broad swath of the major kind of areas of the industrial economy that you walk away from the book feeling, wow, we have going going back to that problem solution orientation that I mentioned in the beginning. Wow, we, we team humanity, we have solved a lot of problems. We have come a long way. And in fact, many of those problems have been solved so thoroughly and with such finesse that we've even forgotten that the problems themselves ever existed and the solution has become invisible to us, right? People in every major city, uh, not much more than 100 years ago, were wading through the muck of horse manure, right? Because it took hundreds of thousands of horses to run a city, like literally. In fact, man, I just found out that in, in I think it was 19th century Paris, they grew an enormous amount of like salad crops just fueled by the manure from the horses that ran the city's transportation system, right? Fertilized with that manure. So 
<laughs> epidemics of disease like smallpox and cholera and polio. Again, just a thing that we don't in the in most of the world, we just don't think about this anymore. We don't have to because it's been that problem has been solved and confined to the dustbin of history. And we are so lucky and so privileged to to live in a time when we don't have to even know that those problems ever existed if we if we don't want to. Um, but we should know that those problems existed once. We should have a little bit of gratitude and awe and wonder at this amazing world that we've created. And to do that, I think we need to know how far we've come, like where we came from. And ultimately, I think this tells us something about who we are. Like the vision of humanity that I want to convey through this book is that we are problem solvers. We are the problem solving animal. And that over and over again throughout human history, across a staggeringly wide range of problems, we have come up with pretty amazing solutions. Love it. This is a wonderful segue for me to hand it over to Beatrice because she'll be discussing more some of the existential Hopi questions. And I think with that historic foundation aid, I'm hoping that we can dig into also what you think the future may hold. So thanks a lot. Handing over to Beatrice. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, so this is the Existential Hope podcast. So definitely want to talk more about the future. And yeah, you just shared that the vision that you want to convey is that we're problem solvers. But overall, do you think, are you positive about the future? Do you think, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, I think that what's going to happen is ultimately up to us. And I think even more important than positivity or negativity is a sense of agency. A sense that it's up to us to decide and to do our best to make it a positive future. Yes, fundamentally, I do think it can be a very positive future. And I think that largely from the track record of the past and from, again, what it says to me about the nature of humans and who we are. But I think that's not automatic and it's not inevitable. And we have to always remember that, right? We have to always remember that the future is not guaranteed and that success is not guaranteed. I think to to, to the best ways to fail Uh, at anything, or one, to believe that success is impossible, or two, to believe that failure is impossible, right? The way to succeed is always to understand that success is contingent, and it's contingent ultimately on your choice and effort. And so I think that's how we should see ourselves and our situation. And that means it's, there's a huge responsibility on our shoulders, and especially on the shoulders of every technologist, of every scientist and inventor and startup founder and everybody who's involved in government policy, and in a more indirect way, in the educators who teach the next generation, and the journalists, and the authors who communicate important ideas, and so forth. It's on all of us to create a great future. But I do think fundamentally that, you know, that we can do it. Yeah, no, I definitely resonate with the sense of agency thing. I think that's what one of those things that I feel like has really people seem to have dropped that ball. Very much. But maybe then it's a good segue to ask you about the Progress Fellowship. What's that? Who should apply and by when should they apply? Yeah, sure. Yeah, let me answer the detailed questions and then and I and let me give it like a little bit of the bigger picture. So the detailed answers are so this program is for basically anybody who wants to blog about progress and write about it for a general audience. It is it's for people who want to launch a blog and it's also for people who already have one and just want to grow it or just to just get more immersed in the progress community. And we've had people apply already who are already like relatively established writers and people who are not yet established and really want to get going. So we'll help we'll help all those. The program is going to be an eight week intensive. So you're going to devote like 10 to 15 hours a week for eight weeks. You're going to write several pieces 
and uh, and you're going to get feedback on them from sort of mentors and from your peer group. Where you're going to go through writing instruction. We have partnered with one of the top online writing courses, David Perel's Rite of Passage, and we've worked with them to help adapt the course that they have to deeply researched long form writing. And and it's also just going to involve some kind of immersion in progress studies and the thinking of the progress community. And we're going to have sessions with a bunch of great advisors and mentors. Just off the top of my head, there's folks like Steven Pinker, Tyler Cowan, Tamara Winter at Stripe Press, Virginia Postrel, Johan Norberg, who wrote a book on progress, and a bunch of other people. Just check out the check out the site for the full list. And so they'll be there to do sessions and answer questions and be there as a resource. So yeah, I'm really excited about it. Let me put this in the bigger context of why are we doing this and what is our strategy and what's our theory of change. Allison pointed out that I've said that in order to make progress, we must believe that it is possible and desirable. There are many factors that drive progress, but I think a major one is our fundamental idea about progress itself. Do we think that continued progress is possible versus the sort of idea of inevitable stagnation that we've run out of good ideas? And then do we think that future progress would be even desirable, right? Is progress actually even a good thing? Is it creating better lives for people? Is it is technological progress actual human progress, right? And then I think if you see progress as both possible and desirable, then the more society sees that, the more talent and resources are going to flow into actually creating progress. And the more people are fearful and skeptical of the very idea of progress, the more talent and resources are going to flow into the opposite, into stopping progress or slowing it down or binding it up in endless red tape. And so I think those are the fundamental Progress can have cultural headwinds or it can have cultural tailwinds. And so part of what we're trying to do is reduce the headwinds and increase the tailwinds. And I think in order to do this, as I've said, as has become my tagline, we need a new philosophy of progress for the 21st century. In the 19th century and up until World War I, the world was very optimistic about progress, frankly, a little bit naively optimistic about, about how easy it would be to continue to make progress. They started, People started to think that it was almost inevitable that progress would continue and that it would definitely be good and that, it would, and that progress technology would always be used for good things and, and not in the context of bad or oppressive social systems and so forth. And that turned out to be false. And the 20th century violently shattered the naive illusions of the people who thought that progress was just inevitable and that moral progress would go along with technological progress hand in hand. And there, there were some harsh and very real lessons of the 20th century. There, are, there, there can be some very bad side effects of progress. There are costs and risks to technological and industrial progress. And there are, and it can be used in bad ways, right? Technology in the hands of a Hitler or a Mao is not going to lead to human goodness and good outcomes for humanity. So, but I think that what happened in the 20th century was the those harsh lessons were, were taken a little too deeply. And a certain view of progress came about that said that maybe actually progress was a mistake. And and maybe we and maybe we should stop trying to continue to advance science, technology, and industry, and maybe even roll them back a bit, right? Maybe we went a bit too far. And and so you got the sort of the radical environmentalist movement, the sort of romantic view, almost a back to nature view. You got a lot of skepticism of the establishment and the system and the sort of countercultural idea that we should we should dismantle these big systems or fight against them and everything should be like small and local small local has its advantages but it's not a way that we can do anything and everything 
And we just got a lot of these sort of very fundamental forces, ultimately, that decided to set themselves up against progress. And they succeeded well enough to, not completely, but fortunately, but they succeeded well enough to, I think, contribute to the relative slowdown in technological and economic progress in the last 50 years. And so I think we need to reverse this trend. I think we need a new way forward, not, of course, a return to the naive optimism of the pre-World War I era, but also not this sort of fatalism and defeatism of the, of the counterculture and the kind of late 20th century. We need a we need the right synthesis where we are thoughtful and careful about progress, but also still feel that sense of agency and that sense of humanism, of human well-being as the ultimate standard of how we judge progress even as good. So that's the big picture. To do that, to create that new philosophy of progress and to advance it, I think we need a movement. We need an intellectual and sort of cultural movement for progress. And that's what I hope progress studies will become, among other things. And all such movements are based on a body of ideas, ultimately, I think, expressed in the form of books, not exclusively, but very importantly, in the form of books. And so we need thinkers and writers, pe- people who are going to think and research and, and write and speak and write in many forms, journalism and blogging and, and so forth. But ultimately, we need books as a really important form of this. And so one of the key strategies of the Roots of Progress as, a, as an organization is to help to create the new generation of progress thinkers who are going to create that intellectual base for the movement. And the blogging program in particular is our first effort within that. And it is specifically aimed at the first step in becoming that type of person, which typically is launch a blog and grow it and build an audience. And so, all right, that's working all the way from intellectual history of the last couple centuries down to why did we launch a blog building program? But hopefully that connects the dots. Yeah, no, definitely. I am. I'm also happy you mentioned that you on Norbe. He was an advisor for me. That actually, like in terms of needing guidance and these things, and he was an advisor for me when I wrote a paper about the sort of difficulties with liberalism and technological development, and that you do have these things always when you have tech development. There's so much good that comes with it, but it's always some sort of backlash also or like challenges. And he was also pointing out a lot about oftentimes we have development from areas where like we, we it's very unexpected. I think he mentioned like online payment systems coming from like online porn and these sort of things, like often very unexpected, important knowledge comes from not the nicest places, maybe. Yeah. But so in terms of what like future we want. So one of the things that we always ask is about this thing of a U catastrophe. So that's literally like the opposite of a catastrophe, like a positive event, an event where once it has happened, we're much better off. And so do you have any idea what you think such a you catastrophe would be? Going back to the original discussion about AI, that could certainly be it, right? Or some other major breakthrough. The the literal logo of the Foresight Institute is a nanomachine, right? So nanotechnology would be another one of those things. Some breakthrough in genetic engineering, right? But you know, we can all make up these things. I think I think one of the questions maybe that you had had listed was, do I have a better term than eucatastrophe? And I think I thought about that, and I like Kevin Kelly's term protopia. But one of the reasons that I like his term is because it's specifically set up as as something different from a utopia. It's actually a difference in concept, right? Utopia is the idea that we reach some sort of static end state where everything's amazing and wonderful. 
And Protopia is a much more incrementalist kind of, actually, more importantly, it's a much more dynamic rather than static concept of the good future. It's not a notion that we're going to hit some kind of, yeah, uh, find some static utopia, but the idea that actually just things are just going to keep getting better and a little bit better and better, but over the long period of time. And I think that matches reality more than any kind of static vision. Reality is dynamic, not static. Similarly, I think that reality tends to be incremental and progress tends to be incremental and maybe it's punctuated, not completely smooth, but it tends to be more incremental and gradual than happening in big explosions. So I don't think that, so I think that actually maybe there's something, like I would question the very concept of the eucatastrophe. I don't think that good things happen in big bangs. I think they actually come about more more gradually and, and incrementally. And even when you're in the middle of them, it can it can seem like everything's taking a very long time. Yeah, I think the actual like example that Toby Orden and Owen Cotton Barrett had in the paper about existential risk and existential hope where... They chose the term utopia for this concept was the creation of life, which certainly was a gradual process, I would say. Yeah, so I also very much agree with that. So in terms of this, also going back to the fellowship a little bit, like what do you think would be the most, is there any specific breakthrough in the next five years, thinking more near term, that would let you know that, okay, we're on track to this protopia? Oh, I don't know. I think we're on track to it as long as we can, as long as we can continue the overall, I was about to say the overall theme of the maybe the last few hundred years, but it's really the overall theme of like all of human history. If you look at all of human history, going back to the beginning of even behaviorally modern humans, some 50, 70, 80,000 years ago, the big theme is that progress accelerates. So progress was extremely slow in the, in the pre-agricultural period, but it did happen. You can see the hit. In fact, I would say I would argue that technological progress is maybe even older than Homo sapiens, because you can see it in the fossil record or not the fossil record, but in the, the archaeological record of stone tools going back almost three million years. Stone tools gradually evolved over that time. The very first ones were quite crude. It was really literally just like you took a big rock and you hit it with another rock until a big hunk of it whacked off and you had a sharp edge. And then by and then in the sort of middle of the period, the rocks are starting to get a little more shaped and they're now they have maybe a sharp edge all the way around. Right. And then by the end of the stone age, like you have a whole detailed toolkit with all of these, like very, like where the rocks are like very specially formed into precise shapes. And you have a diverse set of different tools that have like specific purposes and you have arrowheads and you have awls and you have all this, this kind of stuff. And so, so progress was going on. It's just that innovations came along every like thousand years or so, right? Or maybe even not that fast. And then in the Middle Ages, like you did not have a lot of progress happening, but it was faster than an invention every thousand years. Maybe you got a major invention every century or something, right? And somebody comes along and you get the plow and you get the spinning machine. And these are the spinning wheel, rather, not, a, not an automated spinning machine, of course. Uh, and you get these sort of basic things that increase productivity somewhat. It's just that, again, they were coming along once a century, right? And then and then the inventions started coming along once a decade. And maybe by now they're coming along every year, or maybe they will soon, right? And so I think if that... And the reason for this is that progress begets progress. Like progress compounds. The more progress we make, the more we have the ability to continue making progress faster. 
every communication technology allows us to spread new ideas faster and to search them and to combine them, right? Every transportation technology opens up bigger markets and leverages all of our R&D. Every fundamental new manufacturing or energy technology opens up new types of things that we can create, new types of objects and machines and so forth, right? And so you get these general purpose technologies, these fundamental things, and they either just open up very broad new possibilities or they just make the very process of of advancement faster in itself. Uh, And so uh, I see no reason that this won't just continue. So, you know, Protopia is, this is the great thing about Protopia is that it's actually already here, right? Utopia is something that feels like it's always in the future, and it's hard to imagine actually getting there. But Protopia is actually is just if you zoom out enough, it's just a description of the human condition. It's we're already here. In fact, in a certain sense, we've always been here. And you can just take a minute to step back and nod and appreciate that fact. So, yeah, I think that's a good way to almost start rounding off. I think like we're really starting to revel in this success, I guess. One of the things that you have mentioned, I think, throughout this conversation is like the importance of intellectual development and learning and reading and yeah, developing our knowledge to create this progress movement. And so do you have any recommended reading or how, where should one start if they want to learn about progress studies? We actually put together a bit of a resource guide when we launched the the, the blog building program. If you go to fellowship.rootsofprogress.org, you'll see the announcement about that. And there's a link there. It says resources. And that goes to, to a page that we set up with a bunch of links and great places to get started. So that would be my recommended reading, including a bunch of articles you can read. And also, if you want to dive deeper, top handful of books. That's perfect. You have a guide. That's perfect. And is there anyone person that you think if we think of existential hope that inspires existential hope for you that ideally also that you think we should have on this podcast so we can invite them oh wow there are a bunch of people who are really who are really pushing forward the frontiers of progress so it would be tough to name any one person who would stand out and again there are most of them are pretty well-known names but happy to send you some podcast suggestions later perfect so last question before I see, we have some questions from the audience also that maybe we have time for. What is the best advice you ever received? Wow. Best advice I ever received. I mean, I mentioned towards the beginning that I used to be in the tech industry and I was once a uh, once or twice a startup founder. And when you're a founder, you get you go and you get advice from a lot of different people and a lot, lots of people are happy to give you advice, especially your investors, right? But I had one investor who just kept asking me, like, what do you think you should do? <laughs> and what is your and what is your like bottom line? What is your gut judgment here? And he was like the only investor who would do that, right? Everybody else would give you advice and then just trust you to go away and figure it out. And maybe even in, if you asked them, they would tell you, yeah, you should go with your own judgment in the end. But I had someone who explicitly reminded me to do that. And so the best advice maybe is actually somebody asking, who is that investor? That was Dustin Dolgano. So thanks, Dustin. So maybe the best advice is actually meta advice, which is that it's great to get advice, but it's also easy to over rely on it. At the end of the day, every time that I went against what sort of my like intuition was, if I had a strong one, in order to take advice from people who were smarter and more experienced and more accomplished than I was, it usually turned out to be wrong because they just didn't know my situation as well as I did, right? 
And even the smartest people and most experienced people can be wrong sometimes. So yeah, that's the meta advice. Listen to all the advice, seek it out, but process it. Think about what it actually means. And at the end of the day, make up your own mind, even if that is against all the advice that you got. That's a very good point to collect the information, but think for yourself, I guess. So if we maybe we have time for one or two questions, I think, Lucas, do you want to go quickly? Yeah, sure. Jason, thanks for the talk. That was chock full of really interesting stuff. Relating to your ad- advice point, I have a number of friends who, just like me, just graduated, left our jobs and or exited our startups. So what are some good problems you think motivated builders and organizers should work on? If you were to just highlight a few. Um, wow, you could you could do much worse than to start with the, the Foresight Institute's like list of cause areas, right? Like right there are some of the top biggest sort of opportunities for humanity. It's really tough because there's so many different things. And what is actually going to be the best opportunity is not actually something that is going to be obvious to most people, right? So again, with the kind of the don't take advice, <laughs> it's the best advice actually maybe on this particular point is go become a deep domain expert in something that you are fascinated by and obsessed with. And from that vantage point, you will be able to see the opportunities for what to work on. Actually, check out Paul Graham's latest essay, How to Do Great Work. He has a lot of good points along these lines and in his other essays as well. But yeah, go just learn a lot about something that you are fascinated by and then you will be able to see the opportunities that maybe nobody else can see, even if you can't legibly explain at the beginning why they are great opportunities and just go after that. Sounds good. Sounds fun. Yeah, I think that was some great don't give too much advice to round off on. So yeah, thank you so much, Jason, for joining us. And I'm really excited to yeah release this episode and let people listen to it. Thank you so much. And I hope to see you at Vision Weekend. Yep. Looking forward to being there. Thanks so much for having me on. Always a fun time. I have so much respect for what Foresight Institute is doing. So keep up the great work. And thanks again. And that's a wrap for today's episode of the Existential Hope podcast. If you found our discussions inspiring, consider subscribing to our monthly Hope Drop newsletter at existentialhope.com. And you will always be up to date on the latest podcast episodes and news and events from the X-Hope ecosystem. Listen to us again next month when we will interview another exciting thinker about what positive futures looks like to them. See you then.